Good morning. Please pray with me. Jesus, I pray as we come to the preaching of your word that you would open our hearts, that we would hear the voice of your Holy Spirit, that we would be led by that, that we would know your love and trust you and obey you. I pray that in your name. Amen. This is the word of the Lord found in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church, chapter 4, verse 15, through chapter 5, verse 4. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Liesl. If you want to open in your Bible, we're in Matthew 25. We're going to look at the first 13 verses in the Pew Bible. Uh, We're on page uh, 1540, 1540. This is the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Follow along with me as I read the Gospel of the Son of God. Jesus says, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and they fell asleep. And at midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! And then all the virgins woke up, and they trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil! Our lamps are going out! No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others 
also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, Jesus says, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Jesus of Nazareth has been speaking in this passage prior to this about how the day and the hour of his return would be unknown. He's taught them that he is going to die and he is going to be resurrected. He's going to ascend to the Father and he's going to be gone. And he's told them they're going to have to wait. And he says, you can't guess how long it's going to be. I'm not telling you how long it's going to be. Only the Father knows how long I will be. And now he's speaking in a parable, having taught them about how the day and the hour of his second coming would be unknown. He then illustrates it with a story about ten women. It says virgins. What that means is that these were unmarried women who were engaged. They were engaged, we can infer, to a king. Uh, We can infer that he was, they were engaged to a king because there were ten of them. And uh, you're not really supposed to marry ten people all at the same time. In the United States, we tend to do it one at a time. It's serial monogamy. But, you know, in the ancient world, sometimes these things happened. But even in the Old Testament, it was not supposed to be that way. And the kind of people who could get away with it were usually rich. And the kind of people who could get away with it in quantity were kings. And so these ten women are engaged to a king, and, and the number of wives is actually not what Jesus emphasizes. He emphasizes the detail of the delay. The brides weren't ready. The groom took a whole lot longer to come back for them than they expected, and half of the brides were not prepared. They had no oil in their lamps. And so they missed out on the wedding. They missed out on the party. What is it that Jesus is telling us in this passage? First point, Jesus is saying to the church that I may be a whole lot longer than any of you could ever imagine. It's what he's just been taught. He's illustrating the fact of the delay of his return. You know, they were thinking they'd come back within years or months or decades. And he's saying, it's going to be a long time, longer than you will ever expect, longer than the church could ever expect. And as a result, don't become complacent because I may be a whole lot longer than you'd ever imagine. There have been a lot of attempts throughout Christian history to predict the date of Christ's return. You know, around the year 200, Hippolytus of Rome set the date of Christ's return at 500 Anno Domini. Since, by his logic and biblical deduction, the Lord had made the earth and the heavens in six days, and with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, therefore one could presume that there would be 6,000 years in church history. And he had read one Jewish author who had suggested a creation date of 5500 B.C., and therefore in the year 500, at the end of the 6,000-year-long day, Christ will certainly return. You can read about it. He's got all of his math in his work on Daniel, second fragment, chapter 4. St. Martin of Tours suspected it would be a little earlier than that. St. Martin of Tours predicted that Christ would return in the year 400 A.D., while Sextus Julius Africanus 
calculated the date of Christ's return at 800 AD, and John of Toledo, likewise, calculated that all of the planets would align in Libya on September 23rd of the year 1186, and so he circulated a letter warning that this would be the end of the world when Christ returns in glory. More recently in my lifetime... Family Radio General Manager Harold Camping notoriously set the date of the end of history as September 6th, 1994. I remember in 1995, that book was 25 cents. You could get a dozen for a dollar. There have been lots of attempts to predict Christ's return, and Jesus is saying, I may be a lot longer than you ever imagined. And Jesus keeps emphasizing that we can't know when this is going to be. It's what he's talked about in the previous passage. He had just alluded to Daniel 7, verse 13 to 14, where Daniel talks about a son of man who would come with clouds and glory, and and he would be the one before the Ancient of Days whose rule would last forever. He would be the last king, the king who would rule for all of eternity, and all the nations of the earth would worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through him. And Jesus has identified himself as this son of man spoken of in Daniel who's going to return with clouds and glory. And yet Jesus, at the beginning of Acts, tells, after his resurrection, tells his church, it's not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority. And here in this parable of the ten virgins, the ten engaged women waiting on their king, he's telling his church, that he may be delayed far longer than the church will ever expect. You see, the context here is of a Jewish wedding in the first century in Palestine. And in first century Palestinian uh, weddings, they were a very elaborate affair, less like an American wedding and maybe more like a Middle Eastern or Indian wedding. It's the kind of thing like you think the longest wedding you've ever been to. How long was the celebration? Maybe if you were in the wedding party... Maybe Thursday night you did bachelorette party and Friday night was the rehearsal and Saturday was the pictures and the photographs and the posing and the pictures and, and the getting dressed and the pictures and the, the, the photographer doing his thing and the wedding and the pictures and the waiting and the pictures and the photographs and the family photographs and the, with the pastor photographs and, and just the male's photograph and just the female photograph and then rushing to the reception where everybody's waiting and, and, and then dancing through the night away. And it might be a two-day affair. If you're not in the wedding, it might be a Saturday morning or maybe an all-day Saturday. But in the ancient world, in Palestinian Judaism in the first century, their tradition was that a wedding lasted a week to two weeks. And it was a celebration. And the way it would happen is first there would have to be an engagement. Uh, A man would ask a young woman's hand in marriage. Uh, She would consent, and then they'd go to the families, and the families would agree, and various uh, negotiations would happen. And, And then the man would go away. Because before he could marry, I mean, she might be 13 years old. Before he could marry, he had to establish his career. He had to buy a house. He had to have property. He had to, he had to have his living and his home prepared. And so he might be gone months or years. He might come back when she's 17 or 18 to marry her. It could be a long time. That's the tradition. And Jesus is here talking about that tradition, saying he is the king. 
And he is coming. He is now engaged to his church and to all the people in his church. If you've been baptized and professed faith in Christ, you're there. But in this case, Jesus is the groom. He's saying to his betrothed, his fiance, he's saying to you, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you with many mansions. And when I come back, when I return, it's going to be a lot longer than you expected. We don't know, Christians, at the end of history when the final church history textbook is printed. We don't know if we're in chapter 12 of volume 3 of a three-volume set, or whether we're in chapter 1 of volume 1 labeled the early church, because we don't know how long Christ will return. But his point is, no matter how long it is, uh, as with him, a thousand years are like a day, and if he actually created space and time, you know, 14 billion years ago, this is still real early days, possibly, but however long it's going to be, says, don't grow complacent. Why is that? Be ready, he says. Second point, be ready because it's possible to be a member of the church and not have any oil in your lamp. See, Jesus is not addressing the world with this parable. He's not saying to the world out there, I'm engaged to the world, and some of you need to join a church and you'll be the virgins that are prepared, and the rest of you are going to be unprepared, and you're going to be screaming and freaking out and saying, oh, let us in, and I'm not going to let you in because I don't know you. That's not what he's saying. He's talking to the church. He's talking to us. He's talking to me. Because we're the ones engaged to him. We're the ones awaiting the wedding banquet of the Lamb at the end of history when Christ actually weds the church. We're his bride in the sense of being betrothed to him. He has promised to take us in. We have promised to be there, but until those promises on both sides are fulfilled, we're not actually technically yet fully married. The wedding is yet to come. And he's talking to the church saying, you ten virgins, it's possible that half of you don't have any oil in your lamp. It's possible to be part of the church and yet unconverted spiritually, supernaturally to Christ. Has your life had a collision course with the mercy of God in Jesus? Has it changed your life? That's not to say you have to have a sudden conversion, because if you were raised in the church, and some of you were, you're very unlikely to have a sudden conversion, but rather a slow dawning that, yes, I do believe in Jesus. Jesus, I do trust you to be my Savior. I do want to follow you. I do want you to change my life. But are you converted? Do you know that Christ has saved you? Are you alive to God? Do you trust in him? the language of this parable, Jesus is asking, have you prepared for your wedding day? See, the shout comes in the middle of the night. They bang at the door. The cry goes out. Everybody wakes up. They're trimming their wicks. They're scraping off the burnt ends. They're getting their lamps out and preparing everything. They're flicking their bick or whipping out their zippo. They're trying to light them, and half of them light, and half of them don't, because half of them didn't bring any oil. They hadn't made the preparations. And so they run out to buy oil in the middle of the night after trying to, you know, con some out of their friends. 
but uh, by the time they reach the groom's house, it's too late, and the wedding has already taken place, and the celebration has already begun, and they've already locked the door to strangers. And the groom comes to the door, and he says, I don't know you. You're not my bride. Those are the most terrifying words that any of us might ever hear. When the end comes and your ashes are somewhere in an urn or your body's in a box and your consciousness supernaturally survives, will you be inside the party or will you be outside? Will you be known or unknown? Will you have a life wedded to the beauty and goodness of God or will you be locked out? He's talking to those of us in the church. Will you be in that joyful dance of the cosmos, all the planets, the solar system, the created world, all of the creatures rightly related to God, in tune with the universe, the harmony of all things, the embrace of the goodness and brilliance and wisdom of God behind it all, making it to happen moment by moment? Will you be in on that dance, known and loved and filled with joy, experiencing the fullness of humanity that you never experienced before, alive as if you've never been alive before, there with Christ and your creator fully wedded in celebration in a party or will you be alone and on your own outside you can be a member of the church but not have any oil in your lamp Jesus says notice the similarity between these brides had they all received the invitation to the wedding check had they accepted the invitation to the wedding check Did they all have their lamps? Check. Did they go out to meet the groom? Check. Did they all feel affection for the groom? Check. Did they all call him their Lord? The five without oil, knocking at the door, please let us in. Kurie, kurie, Lord, Lord, please let us in. Jesus says, many will call me Lord on that day, and I will say, depart from me. I never knew you. The same words here, I don't know you. You can be part of a church, receive baptism, take membership vows, give your money generously, serve in office, and wear the t-shirt, and yet miss the wedding. It's possible to profess faith without actually possessing faith in Christ. It's possible to be outwardly Christian without being inwardly Christian. In the Jewish language, it's possible to be circumcised outwardly but not be circumcised in the heart. It is possible to be churched and yet still unconverted. I've got a photograph. Uh, David, if we could get that first photograph. Um, cool looking guy. This guy's a seminary student. Um, a hipster, you know, you think he probably goes to the journey. Um, no, not really. This, this young man was raised going to church schools. He went to seminary. He actually trained to be a priest. He was born Yosub the Sarionis de Jugashvili on the 18th of December, 1878. Church guy, seminary student. Today we know him by the name of Joseph Stalin. He killed 50 million people. It's possible to be a part of a church, Jesus is saying, and yet have no oil in your lamp. Thank you, David. Are you prepared? you believe? We're going to notice some details about real saving faith. I'm just going to go through three or four details here that that you can really pick out from this passage. First thing about real saving faith. Do you have it? Are you truly converted? Saving faith, we learn, is non-transferable. 
You know, you look at it, and, and as the groom is approaching, and they're all freaking out because they don't have any oil, they try to get some oil from their fellow bridegrooms, and they can't do it. Why? Because it's great that your mom and your dad had this amazing Christian story, and that your grandma and grandpa and great-grandma and great-grandpa were part of a church and had an amazing relationship with Jesus Christ, intimate and profound and life-transforming, but that doesn't automatically transfer to you. You have to receive Jesus yourself. You have to say, Lord, be my Savior. You have to bow your own knee. No one can do that for you. No one can be converted for you. Only you can turn to Jesus. Only you can get oil in your lamp. It's not transferable. You have to do that yourself. You have to say, okay, Jesus, here's the wheel. You take, you take the wheel. I'm going to sit in the passenger seat. You're going to drive this thing, and I'm going to go wherever you want, whatever that looks like. I trust you, Jesus. You're my Lord. See, it's non-transferable. Second point, genuine saving faith is not evident until you have suffered, until you've freaked out, until your life has fallen apart, until some horrible thing has happened. You may not know whether you have oil in your lamp at all. You see, all these maidens, they are sailing along just fine through life, and they're going to get married, and they all had their lamps until the crisis arose. It wasn't until the crisis that they knew whether they had oil in their lamps or not. It seemed fine until the middle of the night when that knock comes at the door. He's here. Get ready. The groom's coming. Some had oil and some didn't. Uh, Ray Cortese actually talks about how often he sees it uh, when suffering and misfortune come. You know, you don't, let's say you don't get into the school that you've always dreamt of, or, or you're engaged and your engagement gets called off, or a loved one dies tragically, or you find out you have cancer, or your career veers off course and crashes, or your spouse betrays you, or your child rejects you. When suffering comes, when trial comes, one of two things might happen. Either you're going to say, God, what's the point of you if I can't have that? What's the point of you if I can't have this career, if I can't have this girl, if I can't have this house, if I can't have this life? And you say, screw you, God. I don't want anything to do with you. You haven't fulfilled your part of the bargain. And that's when you're going to know that there's no oil in your lamp. You don't know until the trial comes. You don't know until the suffering. You don't know until you face grief and loss, until it has been tried. The trial is not what makes your faith go away. Nobody loses God. But the trial is a trial because it shows you what you had to begin with, whether there was oil in your lamp when you put the stresses on externally, that's when it becomes clear. You see, genuine faith isn't evident until you suffer. Genuine faith faces a trial and it becomes clear. You know, you lose the job, you lose the career, you lose the girl, the life that you always dreamt of, the future that you always imagined, and God takes that away from you. You face trial and suffering. The knock comes at the door and you say, Jesus, you're my Savior. and I know that you love me, and if you're going to call me to suffer this loss then I'm going to trust that you're going to bring some goodness out of this absolute evil. And you're going to change me, and you're going to shape me, and you're going to walk with me through this suffering, and you're going to redeem my suffering. You see, genuine faith that becomes evident in the trial. The trial reveals the presence of the oil in your lamp. 
Third thing to notice about saving faith is that saving faith is about knowing and being known. It's about relationship. At the end, when Jesus comes out to address the five virgins that don't have oil in their lamp, what does he say? He doesn't say, you haven't measured up, you haven't performed enough, you haven't done your duties, you haven't fulfilled your responsibilities. What he says is, I don't know you. And he's not saying, I don't know who you are. He's saying, I don't know you. I'm not in relationship with you. I don't have that, that, that relational connection with you. We're not a couple. We're not an item. We're not an entity. We're not together. Because it's about knowing and, and being known. That means with saving faith, there's intimacy. It's about being family. It's about having a relationship with God. You know, every other religion on earth, people don't want to be close to their God. You know, you go to India, southwest India, Carnatic priest. Does that priest want to spend time in the presence of his gods? No, he dreads his gods. He's terrified of his gods. His gods don't necessarily love him or have his back. He will get as close as necessary to his gods to get what he wants to get, and then he gets away. And only in Christianity do we see what we see in the Hebrew prophets or in the, in the, in the, in the psalmist who says, My soul longs, yea, pants for the courts of the Lord. Only here do we see relational knowledge and intimacy of wanting to be close to God. Friends, do you want to be close to God or are you trying to get away from him? Because you can do this whole church thing as a big hand between you and God to keep him as close or uh, as far away as, as you can. Or you can do this whole church thing because you want to know Jesus. You want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. You want to be close to him. You want to be intimate. It's about uh, not human religion, but relational knowledge. Imagine, if you will, a woman who, uh, we'll say it's a woman. It could just as well be a man. Uh, I'd probably be a different illustration, though. Uh, Imagine a woman you know, and she's engaged to get married. And you're a friend, and she's always talking about the, the wedding preparations. And it just months and months and months goes by, and she's constantly talking about her dress and about the reception and the hors d'oeuvres and the flowers and the cake and the, the photos she's going to pay for a lot. And, and you talk for months and months and months, and finally it starts to dawn on you that she has never once mentioned what? The groom. She's never once mentioned him. You bring it up. You say, well, what, tell me about the groom. Oh, we're going to have a great groom's cake. It's going to be triple-layer ganache. It's going to have fondant all around it. And it's going to be stacked up like a Mayan temple. And it's going to have little flames shooting out the top. And everybody's going to love it. You're like, okay, something's, something's wrong here. Uh, no stories about what a great guy he is. Nothing invested in the marriage. Everything invested in the wedding. No learning to trust the guy when he makes promises that he might not fulfill. No pre-marriage counseling to start working on the relationship ahead of time. No pictures of him on her desk and on her screen and and on her her phone and everywhere else. No mention of long conversations into the night. No sigh whenever his name is mentioned. (sighs) No mention of his name. And so what's wrong? It seems she's genuinely enjoying planning a wedding but not planning a marriage. The groom has very little to do with it. What about you? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? 
Do you long to be close to him? Are you learning to trust him when he makes a promise? Are there long conversations into the night? Do you have a relationship? Is he your savior, your rescuer? Is he saving faith, Jesus says, is about knowing and being known. Why is Jesus saying this? He's saying it because he loves you. He loves you even if you are that church person who has professed the faith and had the baptism and given the money and has the t-shirt and all of that, he loves the person who doesn't quite get it yet. And so he's teaching us. He's saying, I'm flagging this ahead of time. Do I know you? Do you know me? Are we in relationship? Think how many members of this church have told me that they later realized they weren't actually Christians when they took their membership vows up front that they were here a couple years and then suddenly a light bulb went off and they realized for the first time, oh my gosh, there's oil in my lamp. And they realized there's, there was never oil in my lamp before. It's, it's a miracle of God when the Christians start becoming Christian, when the people in the church start getting converted. That's when the Holy Spirit is really setting loose. And Jesus is sitting here, if that's you, he's standing here at the front of the church this morning with a big old super soaker filled with ice water. He is aiming right between your eyes, and he is blasting you with ice cold water in your face saying, Wake up! There's a wedding coming, and I don't want to lose you. I don't want you to miss out on it. It's like uh, in Florida, you know, when hurricanes come. And, uh, and there's the evacuation order because all these islands, they're not really islands. They're sandbars with lots of people on them uh, all up along the Atlantic coast. The hurricane comes and they, they say, get yourself to safety. And the warning goes out and everybody gets in their car and they cross the bridge. And then the hurricane comes. And there are always a few people who think, we can, we can we're not going to get... This isn't going to be so bad. We're going to survive. We've done this before. And so they go down into their basements. And then the flood comes, the tidal surge, and the basement fills with water and they drown. Or perhaps they, they make it out and they get in their car to drive away and their car is washed out to sea and they're never seen from again. Or perhaps they survive that and as the storm stops and they get out of their car, they walk on an electric cable and are electrocuted in a puddle of water. And all the while, you're watching this on TV and you're thinking, why did you not get to safety when you could? Why didn't you escape when you could? Why did you not get to safety? And that's what Jesus is saying. Get oil in your lamp. Get to safety. Get to safety now. You can do this and you will be wed to me, I promise. I may be a lot longer than you imagined. But it's possible to be a member of the church and not have any oil in your lamp. And so how then, last point, do I prepare for the wedding? What is the oil? The oil is not your good works. The oil is not your effort. The oil is not your trying harder and doing better. That was the Pharisee's answer. Oil in the Bible always is a symbol of the grace of God. The mercy of God on sinners. The anointing of God by his Holy Spirit on sinful rebels that he then claims as his own. It's the anointing power of the grace of God. And Jesus is saying, fill your lamp with my grace. Let it overflow with my mercy towards you. Pour into it the promises of God. The promises of all who hear. 
Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, My soul, how you need this, for your lamp will not long continue to burn. Without it, you have no oil well springing up in your human nature. Therefore, you must go out and get oil for your lamp. He says it was not every oil that was to be used in the Lord's service. Uh, But rather, there was one oil, the best oil, the finest selected. It had to be olive oil that would burn clear and it would burn brightly. He says, pretended grace from natural goodness, fancied grace from priestly hands, or imaginary grace from outward ceremonies will never serve the true saint of God. He knows that the Lord would not be pleased with rivers of such oil. He goes to the olive press of Gethsemane, and he draws his supplies from him who was crushed therein. The oil of gospel grace is pure and free from lees and dregs, and hence the light which is fed thereon is clear and bright. Our churches are the Savior's candelabra, and if they be lights in this dark world, they must have much such oil. Let us pray for ourselves, he writes, our ministers, and pray for our churches that they might never lack oil for the light, the truth, the holiness, the joy, the knowledge, the love. These are all beams of the sacred light, but we cannot give them forth unless in private we receive oil from God, the Holy Ghost. Friends, oil produced and procured for you by Jesus in the olive press of Gethsemane in which he was crushed. Friends, this is a wedding. And the oil is free. You got to rip off the fig leaves of self-righteousness because Jesus has bought you a new wedding dress and it is the righteousness of Christ. And if you put on that wedding dress... And if you have his oil that he produced on his cross, his grace, his free, rich promise to you, then be ready for the wedding. It's about to take place. The Bible describes the church's wedding to God, not as a somber and terrifying judgment, not as a a dark and mysterious wedding service, not as a cold and foreboding encounter, but as a party as a jubilant celebration, as a week, two-week-long festival with dancing and eating and drinking and more dancing, a feast fit for the King of Kings, infinite, unending joy, the shalom of God, universal flourishing, a time of renewed relationships, a festivity of joy, a soiree, a bash, a celebration that's around the corner, and the groom is saying, I'm going to be delayed. But when I come, It's going to be amazing. And you don't want to miss this party. One last story here. Uh, David, could I get that next slide? This is Melissa Dome. She was 22 years old. And uh, Melissa was stabbed by an ex-boyfriend, Robert Burton Jr., 32 times. And one of the first responders who found her at that horrific scene was a guy named Cameron Hill, who worked hard to stabilize this young woman who was almost unrecognizable. The next slide is here. of uh, That's Cameron, the first responder. He said that the sight of the young woman, was she was drenched in blood with stab wounds to her hands, 
to her arms, to her face, and to her head. He said it was the most gruesome thing he had ever seen in his more than a decade as an EMT. And though he couldn't see her face, he could not even tell that she had blonde hair because the blood was coating it so thickly. We have a photo of her at the hospital, uh, unrecognizable. And uh, though Cameron didn't know her name and the injuries were the worst that he had ever seen, he says he had a strange feeling at the time that he knew in his heart that he was going to see her, that she was going to survive. He worked hard toward that end. And Melissa Dome ended up being in the hospital for three weeks. And her condition seemed to go from bad to worse as doctors and nurses worked to save her. She flatlined. They managed to get out the paddles and shock her and resuscitate her, but she flatlined again. And then again, she flatlined four times. They ended up having to pump 12 units of blood into her. And then Melissa suffered a stroke. She pulled through, but it affected her balance. She almost didn't make it out alive, but the quick work of her first responder had saved her life. A severed nerve partially paralyzed the left side of her face. And though doctors didn't know if she would ever be able to speak or smile or walk again, she made a remarkable recovery. And she left rehab walking without a cane or a walker and took a trip to Europe with a bunch of her friends to celebrate her survival. And when she got back, she was asked to share her experience at a local church. And and afterwards, there, one of the paramedics who had been there surprised her. It was the man who had saved her life, that paramedic named Cameron Hill. They hugged, they cried, they exchanged phone numbers, and Melissa said it was weird. I had this feeling for him. When they met up again, she said she felt like she was in the grasp of a full-blown crush. And as they talked easily, they talked naturally. Cameron didn't know what to do, but he couldn't get her out of his head. Uh, Even though he had rescued her and saved her life, he eventually asked her out. And uh, it was their first date ever since the pair have been inseparable. Uh, Dome calls Hill her fairy tale. Um, Sometime later, Melissa was asked to throw out the first pitch at a Tampa Bay Rays game. Uh, We've got a photo of that. Here she is, all healed, better, able to walk, able to throw a pitch. And as she reached the pitcher's mound, of course, she didn't have a ball, and there was a guy coming who had a ball in his hand, and she recognized the guy bringing her a ball was her her boyfriend, uh, Cameron. And he approached her, and he handed her the ball, and as she took it, she started, her whole body started to shake. We got a photo of that. Next one. Um, Because as she... uh, 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 as she got there, Cameron knelt down in front of her, and she read the words. They were handwritten on that ball in a Sharpie, uh, will you marry me? Got a slide of that. And then one more. Uh, she began crying, and she said, yes, yes. And as she said yes, he slipped the ring onto her finger and embraced her. Uh, we have a slide, last slide there. Um, friends, there's going to be a wedding. And Jesus saw you bleeding in a ditch with wounds that were going to end you. And he was the EMT, the first responder, and he saved your life, and he fell in love with you. Have you fallen in love with him? Because the wedding is coming, and he doesn't want you to miss out on eternal union between Christ and his church. He's the one who rescued you. He's the one who can save. Get ready, friends, because the wedding day 
coming soon. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks for the wedding supper of the Lamb. I give you thanks that that day is coming when you will wipe every tear from our eyes, when there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more death. The old order will be wiped away and a voice from the throne will say, Behold, I make all things new because Jesus Christ, Son of God, you are the one who alone can fulfill the longings of our heart. You are the one who alone can rip off the fig leaf of self-righteousness that we've had since the beginning and clothe us in the clothes of your righteousness, your holiness, getting us off our own treadmill and into your grace and into your favor as your bride, as the one that you have loved, as your church, as your friend. We thank you, Lord, for that day that's going to come. And we know, Lord, that these elements on this table are here to preach that gospel to us, that Christ died for us. And so we consecrate these elements to you now in his name. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. And lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It's good and right to give him thanks and praise. It is good and right to give him thanks and praise. If you're ready to do that, if you're a baptized member in good standing of any church where Jesus is the Savior, if you're ready to come to him saying, Lord, I need you to drive. You're my Savior. And this is for you. You don't have to be a member of this church or this denomination. It's the Lord's table. And I wouldn't get in your way because the Lord delights in his bride. For it was on that night in which he was betrayed that the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, Take this and eat. This is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, the Lord Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, great is the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Therefore, let us keep the feast.